Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and I have, you know, those of you who listen to the show routinely will be surprised, I think, by today's show. Every now and then, I do a show uh, that uh, uh, kind of pulls away from my usual research, um, psychology, uh, you know, legal kinds of focuses, and this show today is going to be one of those, and I'm going to be schooled today, and the person who is my guest who is going to be schooling me is somebody who is very experienced at doing that, and his name is Mark Winwood. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you, Heather, and and thank you for putting the pressure on me right at the top. Thanks so much. (laughs) It's my speciality, as they say. (laughs) Um, Well, Mark knows me a little bit, and I think he knows that I tend to be a very practical Midwest farm girl. I don't go in for any of this, you know, fancy-schmancy stuff and, you know, too much introspection, which is interesting when you consider the fact that I, you know, my, my PhD is in psychology, but still... Uh, I tend to not poo-poo and do a lot of what I call the unicorns and rainbows kind of stuff. However, my lovely daughter, um, who is also pretty practical, told me that I needed to read a book. And she gave me the book, and it's called The Places That Scare You, A Guide to Fearlessness in Difficult Times. And it's by a woman, and I'm sure I'm going to mask her name, Pima Chodron. And Correct. Yep. And it, it is a Shambhala Buddhist-based uh, treatise. And as I'm reading this, you know, at first I thought, oh, I'm just going to read this to humor my daughter and let her know that I appreciate her thinking of me and blah, 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 but I really am not interested in this stuff. Except, except when I started reading it, I went, whoa, this isn't peace, love, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, this woman has a real practical bent, and it kind of matches my really practical bent. So that's when I called Mark, and I said, hey, Mark, let's do a show. And he said that we could, and he said something before the show that I wanted to bring to when I was telling him, you know, that that, uh, this was going to be an opportunity for him to teach me because uh, I am a reluctant student when it comes to this stuff. And he said, well, uh, what did you say, Mark, that that, uh, Buddhism isn't about the touchy-feely unicorn stuff? It's a, a warrior's path? Is that what you said? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, Buddhism as depending upon where you are in the world, if you're if you're in the Far East, if you're in Tibet or in Nepal, Buddhism is kind of superstitious and there is a little bit of touchy-feely and it's not terribly intellectual or terribly psychological. Um, mainly because most of the people who are who are approaching it and studying it are are not educated. Here in the West, though, Buddhism is a whole different story. It's really not touchy-feely. It's not about sitting on a cushion and getting that holy look on your face or anything like that. Buddhism is a, it's a psychological study. It's a, it's a way toward mental health. It's a way toward understanding why we have confusion and anxiety and suffer and uh, from traumas and so on and so forth, understanding the nature of those and in understanding the nature of them, they kind of uh, uh, lose their teeth to some degree. And then there are understandings and practices and ways of perceiving that create real healing and moving beyond anything that has deeply wounded us in the past. So mm-hmm. it's a tough road. Yeah. Tough well, and one of what you hit, you hit right away on one of my things that's my pet peeves. I think we live in a culture here in the United States where we're not allowed to work through the things that have wounded us. 
I think that uh, the, my classic story is a woman who's uh, a friend of mine who's married for 40 years to the same man, wonderful marriage, wonderful man, wonderful woman. He died. And she said for the first six months, everybody was wonderful and understanding. And after six months, it was, you've got to move on. You've got to put this behind you. You have to let this go. And she's going, 40 years, 40, you know, twice in my life, you know, two thirds of my life. I, I spent with this man and now he's gone for three months and I'm supposed to just let it go. You know, like releasing a butterfly into the, you know, how do you do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. seems so unrealistic, but that's the way our culture says that if we, you know, that if we don't forgive, forget, move on, which I think, is realistic. I think that has to be a process, not something that you do in three or four months. And sometimes it might take years. That's my feeling. Um, and yet, and yet, you're talking about moving on and, and this being a way to move on. How does my uh, curmudgeonly view mix with the Buddhist view of this whole move on kind of thing? Well, Buddhism is, and and I'm talking specifically about Tibetan Buddhism, and we don't need to get into the differentiations. But you know, there's Buddhism everywhere. Every country, certainly in the in the Orient and the East and Asia, has a, has Buddhism within it. And in in each country, the Buddhism is somewhat different because it merges so deeply with the culture. And as the culture is different and the language is different, the Buddhist practices become different. So I specifically have studied and uh, and share Tibetan Buddhist ideas and practices, and so the and even though I say and it's true that Buddhism is a it's psychological, it's psychological in that it is a study of the mind. It we learn. In fact, there's one of the one of the great teachers um, who defined spirituality. Everybody has different ideas of what spirituality might mean, and and I think he was he was dead on. He said spirituality is is studying your mind, watching how your mind works, why it works the way it does, and once you have that that understanding, we begin to discern within the mind what is wholesome and beneficial and what is unwholesome and confusing or harmful. And we learn to let the harmful go. Don't engage. Don't let it drag you into the thorns. Just let it go, which we learn how to do. And when the beneficial, when the wholesome, when the altruistic arises, the kind and loving and so on, we nourish that. We nurture that. We cultivate that. So, in that way, Buddhism is psychological in that it's a study of the mind. However, Buddhism is not about in any way going back into the past and, you know, on the, you know, the, the iconic psychi psychiatrist's couch and sitting on the couch and, and, you know, portraying what occurred in the past and reliving what occurred in the past. Buddhism is not about that. Buddhism is about moving forward. And in that way, it is kind of a spiritual path. It's, it's about cultivating clarity and, and confidence and understanding and balance and, um, and allowing all these wonderful qualities that do exist in the mind to arise and be in use at each moment as it comes. And in doing that, the past hurts and traumas begin to become less ferocious they become to have, you know, shorter teeth, less claws, and that's how we move beyond. We move beyond by replacing 
not by going back and trying to somehow relive and heal that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that make sense? That sounds, that sounds good. It makes sense. Um, um, it, what I gathered from this book that I'm reading is that I think the thing that bothers me so much about, you know, the, the cultural messages that we get is you obviously you can't just keep sitting there picking at a scab that occurred to you. You know, you, you can't just keep doing that. That's not healthy. It's not good. You can't do anything if you do that. However, if you don't examine the bad stuff that happened to you, I say that you're just putting a coat of paint on it. You know, what, what do they used to say? Putting lipstick on the pig, you know, put the lipstick on the pig and then pretend that it's a gorgeous thing. And, and mm-hmm. my interpretation of what I see culturally is by this pressure that we have that we're supposed to move on, forgive, forget, blah, 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 let it go. We're just kind of emotionally putting lipstick on that pig. That pig is still there and it's still inside of us and we can ignore it and pretend that everything's hunky-dory and that we let it go. But that's different from actually moving on from it. That's correct. I agree. I agree with that. But understand that that in cultivating this mental, I, and I do flat out say that Buddhism is a path to mental health, flat out. Um, so in cultivating the qualities that we might consider uh, to be manifest in a mentally healthy being at any point in time, we're talking about balance. We're talking about stability. We're talking about an awareness um, and and compassion or love or kindness and all you know as you say the touchy feely things. These are all aspects that begin to clarify and arise and abide in the mind wherever we go, and those qualities active and there in the mind, you know, through which we are perceiving and experience what's happening, you know, at any point in time in our lives, render the things that occurred in the past boring and painful and no longer relevant. So this is not about, um, you know, picking scabs and not doing anything else. This is quite the opposite. This is about cultivating clarity and strength in the mind that trump, bad word, but that trump whatever hurts have occurred in the past. And it may sound kind of willy-nilly and wonderful and, you know, Alice in Wonderlandy. Um, but I will tell you, over you know, 15 years of teaching meditation, I have worked with, um, and I'm not a psychologist, I'm a journalist <laughs> from way back, um, but I have, I have worked with many, many people who have astoundingly moved beyond some really painful childhood traumas and embraced these teachings and have made you know, remarkable remarkable difference in their lives you know and and i've 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 cried with people and i've seen people shake uncontrollably in meditations because stuff is just shattering inside of them it's really remarkable um so it's not about it's not about band-aids and it's not even about opening up old wounds and pouring antiseptic to clean them out it's not that this is about growing new skin that renders that that battered, scarred, old skin irrelevant. And that's what happens here. 
<laughs> One of the things that, that we talked about when I was trying to convince you to do this show is that um, we're dealing, you know, there's a, okay, I went to the dog park yesterday, right? Big drama at the dog park because there was a dog that wanted to play with the other dog and wasn't doing anything particularly obnoxious. It was a dog. You know how they kind of go up, and every now and then they'll throw an arm That's over the dog. what dog parks are for. You know. You're right, right. Yes, exactly. Right. Well, there was one man there who was very upset that this dog wouldn't leave his dog alone. Now, the dog wasn't doing anything that was kind of abnormal for dogs. I mean, it wasn't being particularly aggressive. It, wasn't, it just really wanted to play with this dog. The, the man's dog was not interested um, but the dogs weren't growling at each other. They were, you know, I mean, it was nothing. And, and everybody was just kind of like, ah, well, you know, what, whatever. But the man became very upset. And instead of taking his dog to a different part or, you know, taking his dog to leave, he um, threw a leash around the other dog's neck and dragged him to the dog's owner and said, you need to take care of this dog because it's bothering my dog. Okay. Little drama. That's little drama, right? And everybody kind of, you know, got in their little clusters and ooh, the man, and eventually he finally left, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's small drama. Now, the owner of the dog was the, that was being criticized was a little upset because she's going, well, why is he here if his dog doesn't want to socialize? This is why am I supposed to put my dog on a lead? You know, okay, little, little thing. Reason for that long story is that's one thing. And if you're like me, that would bother me for a couple of days. You know, I'd be questioning, did I, did my dog do something wrong? Should I have done something different? Blah, 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 blah. And then mm-hmm. after about two days, it would be gone and I wouldn't give it another thought. Some people, by the time they leave their dog park, it's gone. They're not giving it another thought. However, that's a tiny thing. And we're talking about people experiencing huge traumas in their lives. You know, mm-hmm. death, divorce, destruction, abuse, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, I can see where just kind of thinking good thoughts or whatever might get you past the dog park drama, but how is it going to get you past that huge life-altering drama? Well, is that a little unrealistic? No, it's not. And you know, uh, and (laughs) I'm not belittling and I'm not minimizing um, traumas, and we've all had them, including me. You know, we've all had them. However, mm-hmm. we part of the Buddhist path, and this is regardless of what country Buddhism has come from, involves what we call meditation. And meditation is one of those things that is really misunderstood by lots and lots of people. But um, as we engage in meditation, one of the things that becomes very clear to us is we see that whatever occurs in our mind um, is just a thought. Okay, it's just a thought. At this point, it's just a thought. And thoughts arise, they abide for a few moments, and if we don't hook on to them, if we don't, you know, let them pull us by the nose, they pass and other thoughts occur. This is the nature of mind. Thoughts arise, abide, and pass. And in our meditation practice, we begin to see uh, and know, because we're experiencing this, you know, and therefore we know it to be, that a thought of a trauma that occurred in the past is no different than a thought about what kind of syrup I'm going to have on my Sunday tonight. 
It's all thought, all thought. And if you don't let it grab you, which you learn how to do through meditation practice, it doesn't grab you. Just a thought. Mm-hmm. And and I know oh, that no, sound no, that no, that no, sound no, may be no, pie no, in the no, sky, but that's the way yeah. it is. That's the way it is. It's just a thought. That's all it is. But what about people with PTSD? Those just thoughts come sometimes cause an automatic response that that doesn't allow you to just not embrace the thought. It becomes a physical response rather than just a psychological or emotional or um, mm-hmm. thinking process mm-hmm. response. I don't know. I I I, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychologist. And if somebody, if I was working with someone in in that situation, I would I would share Buddhism with them, but I would also advise that they go to somebody who's way more experienced than I am in that. I I can't. I don't know. Um, I'm talking about the things that, uh, you know, many people, many people experience, such as the divorce or the death of a loved one or, um, you know, (laughs) what we might call normal everyday experiences. I don't know about PTSD and I and I can't speak either, Heather, to um, to uh, mental illness. Um, I'm not trained to do that and um, nor am I experienced to do that. So um, I, I can't answer that. Okay. All right. Um, uh, but I'm willing to go with the fact that if, you know, if, if we're talking outliers, you know, sometimes the outliers require something different, but it sounds to me like if you really embrace this way of thinking and, and it really becomes part of you, it's got to be helpful in some respect, even if, you're, you know, you, you're looking at those outliers. I, I, you know, it would seem to me that it would just provide some sort of foundation that would be helpful in minimizing some of those. But again, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the stronger our foundations, the the more wind we can withhold. You know, and, and it's remarkable. It, it's remarkable. You know, yesterday I went to the Apple store over in the mall in Bellevue, the big Apple store, because I had to replace the battery in my phone. And I called and I made an appointment for two o'clock. And I went there with a friend at two o'clock and was there on time. And they took my phone and they said, OK, your phone will be ready at 330. Uh, and my friend said, 330, you had an appointment. Why do you have to wait an hour and a half? And my response, without even thinking about it, my response was, I'm not the only person on this planet. There's people in front of me. It's fine. I'm patient. I understand. When I get into into traffic jams on the highway, I don't get upset. Um, And this is what the Buddhist teachings and practices and meditations lead us to. And sure, there's always going to be something possibly down the road that's going to occur that will flip me into panic or or anger, perhaps, or, you know, something or arrogance or greed or whatever. I mean, you know, they're always there. There's always higher branches that you haven't gotten to yet. But for the most part, the vast majority of things that occur at any point in time, normal everyday stuff that that might you know tip us over or disappoint us or anger us or or make us feel bad about ourselves or whatever the case may be, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. 
And if it does happen, if it does occur, it doesn't occur nearly as often, it doesn't last as long, and it doesn't occur as intensely. That's what happens. That's what this path does. So sure, there's going to be stuff that we haven't gotten to yet. We have not yet been able to you know, to, to, to till that field, you know, there's still weeds that are going to grow there. Um, but less and less and less and less. One of the other things that I saw in this book that kind of spoke to me, um, and I'm just barely into it right now, but I, I, it was kind of surprising to me, as I said, you know, when I started reading and I thought, well, I'm going to read this for my daughter. So I can say, yes, I read that book. Thank you, honey. Um, Mm. but I said, I called her back or I texted her and I said, is it okay if I make underlinings in this book? You know, <laughs> can I make little notes in this book, please? Um, mm-hmm. But um, she makes some, I'm trying to find the page here that I wanted to talk about. Um, everybody knows the pain of getting what we don't want. Uh, I feel gratitude that someone saw the truth and pointed out that we don't suffer this kind of pain because of our personal inability to get things right. That's another one of my pet peeves about our culture. I had a friend who worked in hospice and for a couple of years, and then she quit working in hospice. And I said, well, you know, I can appreciate that. That must be really hard, you know, working with dying people all the time. And she said mm-hmm. it wasn't the fact that they were dying that was hard on her. It was the fact that they were blaming themselves for dying. Mm-hmm. Because obviously if they had eaten right, if they had exercised enough, if they had taken enough care here, if they had had positive enough thoughts, they wouldn't be dying. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's what our culture does to us. You know, we, mm. we, we try to convince us that, you know, oh, gosh, if we wear enough knee pads and helmets, if we eat the right enough kale, if we, you know, somehow or other we're going to escape what happens to people, mm-hmm. to human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it makes most of us feel terribly guilty. I mean, I, years, years ago when I had my first baby, you know, I mean, the notion was, oh, you exercise, you eat right, you take the right vitamins, da-da-da, you go puff, 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 and out comes this baby. And mm-hmm. I had an 11-pound baby, and I ended up having a cesarean. And, oh, my gosh. Wow. I mean, I'm, yeah. I got talked, you know, I mean, people would literally say to me, oh, you got talked into an unnecessary cesarean. Oh, you got talked into unne- unnecessary medical intervention. I felt horrible. I felt that somehow or other I was, I was letting down my brand-new infant by not having been able to push him out vaginally. And mm-hmm. what, what garbage. What garbage is that, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm, <laughs> you try mm-hmm. having a love and pound baby, Mark. Go right ahead, and then let me know if it's unnecessary. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, but this notion uh, uh. that if bad things happen to us, it's because of our own doing, and that if we're only good enough, we can avoid all that. And when she, when I read this in the, this book, I thought, wow, that's the, I agree with her, and I'm not a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. How can that be? Well, well, there are there are billions of people running around who are not Buddhists, who subscribe to Buddhist notions and have, when they begin to, and I'm kind of hearing in you, dear, have Buddhist, what we might call Buddhist sensibilities, or perhaps even Buddhist inclinations, um, who are not Buddhists. You know, I started, I started sharing Buddhism in my house in, after being in India a few times, in central Florida, where, you know, I'd have 15 to 20 people sitting in front of me, and every single one of them was wearing a big cross around their neck. 
every one of them was wearing a cross around their neck. This was Central Florida. This is the, you know, the the I-4 corridor, the conservative, you know, the thing to put Bush over the top, over Gore, and et cetera. Christian churches, you know, Catholic, Christian, Methodist, Baptist churches on every corner. Um, and they were all interested week after week coming for these teachings because they began to understand that these teachings are making them better Christians. So it's huh. not about not being a, it's not about not being a Buddhist. Forget about being a Buddhist. Nobody wants to change religion. Nobody wants anybody to change religion. And I say that all the time in my teachings here, all the time. Nobody wants anybody to change religion. Um, the thing about you know the guilt and feeling responsible when things go not the way they're planned to go is the flip side of feeling really accomplished and special and wonderful and unique when things go the way they're supposed to go. And they're both fallacies because we are, we are, you know, and I'm going to get into some of these terms that you hear all the time. We are interconnected. We are interdependent. We are not the unique individual that we think we are. We are part of a, of a system and we may have some control over some of the things that occur. Um, you know, at some point in time, we have choices that we can make, but vastly things occur around us due to things or to us due to things that we have absolutely no control over, never had control over. And one of the reasons that we suffer so much is because we believe we do and we don't. And then when things go wrong, we feel guilt. Say that over again. Say that over again. <laughs> say that over again? Yeah, say it okay. Over, so I can absorb it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll try. We, just like we feel guilty when things go, perhaps go not the way we intend them to go. Okay. And I'm not going to say if they go right or wrong. They just don't go the way we intend them to go. Just like we feel special and unique and wonderful and accomplished and talented and brilliant and blah, 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 when things do go the way we expect them to go, you know, we're just master navigators, you know. Um, the truth of the matter is that we, it's all fallacy. It's all illusion. It's all illusion because we have no control over anything. We are a part of 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 millions of things occurring all the time all around us everything is aging everything is changing everything is morphing including ourselves you know you and i are now 25 minutes older than we were when we began this phone call our hair's gotten a little grayer no, this is what happens. Yeah, you know, I mean, my, my bladder is is more full now than it was before we started. My hair's a little longer. My nails are a little longer. You know, uh, who knows how many cells in my stomach lining have, have died since this call started, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all this stuff going on all over, and we're just a part of it. We're just an aspect of it. That's all we are. We're just a blade of grass in a field of grass. That's all we are. But yet we take on this idea and we take on this this really egotistical notion that we're in charge and we're, we're in control and we're not. And then when things go wrong or not the way we plan them to go, we egotistically 
take on the responsibility for that happening when almost all the time we're not responsible. Um, maybe we have a little bit of responsibility, but what's really responsible is the fact that from one moment to the next, everything's changing and it's changing in ways that we can't control. That's yeah. how it works. So we take, we work so hard. We work so hard because if we work hard enough, you know, I mean, come on, Mark. I mean, yeah, we do. We do work so hard. We taught a generation of children that they could be whatever they want to be, anything they want to be, if they are willing to want it badly enough and work hard enough. And I used to give motivational lectures that were kind of the opposite because I'd, I'd say, here I am, you know, a woman of certain years and certain weight, and I really want to be a jockey. I'm, of course, I'm I'm willing to work hard, hard and I really, really want it. Is that ever going to really happen for me? No. No, it's not. But but, but what you said, what you said, true, I mean, it was not false. The problem is that we have created and we live in a culture that makes that impossible. The idea, the idea is fantastic. The idea is wonderful. And you can. And and I'll tell you something. This is one of the kind of the tenets of the Buddhist practice that's so interesting is that Buddhism teaches us that our mind is completely vast. And deep within our mind, we hold absolute perfection. And we can, mind-wise, we can, mind-wise, um, do exactly that. We can accomplish with our minds, we can accomplish anything we can imagine. However, we have the problem of physicality and everything changing and aging and morphing and compounded things coming together and falling apart that make on a physical level make that whole idea that you can do anything you want impossible. I could sit here, I can flap my arms all I want and I am not going to fly out of this chair. <laughs> no matter how much I want to do it. However, right, right. So, so that's just you know that's just the it's the it's just the nature of and and again you know I, I don't want to belabor the point but again Buddhism is a study of the mind and and your mind Heather and my mind are completely and totally infinitely vast. And we live within parameters and boundaries and limitations that we have created for our minds. If you begin to study, if someone begins to study these these teachings and really starts to get it, they are never, ever, ever going to say anymore, you know, I have an anger problem. I get angry and I can't help it. (laughs) They'll never say that ever again because they know better, because they've learned better, because the mind is, 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 is infinitely plastic. It's moldable. It's expandable. It's enrichable. And that's what, again, these teachings, that's what this guy, Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, who sat under a tree in India 26, 2700 years ago, that's what he discovered. And he just went out and taught it. And he was just a guy. He was just a human being. He wasn't divine. He was just a human being. But he d- got through Oh, he got over the walls and through the mud, etc., that was in his mind of all these self-centered conceptions and ignorances and so on and so forth. And he got he got to the seed. He got to the to the to the seed of his mind, basically. And then the whole thing exploded, blossomed. 
So mm-hmm. that's kind of and and that notion, just that notion, just think, you know, being able you have a clear mind, you have cultivated an attitude of patience. You've cultivated an attitude of of interconnectedness. Therefore, you're not any more special than anyone else, um, but you're no less special than anyone else either. Just imagine taking that attitude to the mall three days before Christmas to do your Christmas shopping and what a totally different experience you're going to have. Yeah. Well, that, you know, That's how it works. interesting that you bring that up because I've noticed as I've gotten older and I've, uh, I, so I think it's a function of multiple things. One is I'm getting older. Uh, one is I, I realize that my time is limited. Um, and so I'm impatient. You know, I'm impatient. I, I, there are things I want to do before, you know, that big door shuts. And I live in an urban area that I never wanted to live in. You know, I, I had my little, my little rural enclave here, but over the last umpteen decades, the city has moved in around me. And it's crowded and mm. it's noisy. And mm. I don't like the attitudes of the people. And I don't like, you know, the fact that you can't walk into the store and see people you know and chit-chat a little bit, you know, and stuff like that. I, it makes me insane. And so I find myself the last couple of years becoming very crabby. And I don't want to be crabby. I don't want to be. So I try to laugh about it. But I'm getting crabby. I'm getting to be one of those crabby old people. And I don't like that very much. But then I go, well, what do you expect? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what do you yeah. expect? You're living in this world where nobody has the time to even exchange the, you know, I mean, I, I was in the grocery store and this young girl starts scanning my groceries without even a hello or how are you or did you find everything? And after a couple of minutes, I said, well, it looks like we're going to have a nice day out there. And she looked up and gave me the eye roll. And I thought, you know what? Yeah. I don't like this world. I don't like living that way. I need to go back to my rural roots a little bit and get out of this this overpopulation as I see it, you know. So that's something that I've been struggling with, is to not turn into that crabby old lady that I find myself turning into. Um, And, you know, I I don't know. So maybe you're telling me that I should study Buddhism more. Uh, Well, uh, you know, I'm not not telling you you should study Buddhism, but, you know, Pema Pema Chodron, you know, she's, Pema Chodron's good, um, there, there are there are lots of teachers that are a little bit more gentle than she is, um, and you know, just her path, kind of the Shambhala path, and her her teacher, um, pretty fierce. You know, the Shambhala path path is what's known as the warrior's path, um, and and Buddhism does require you know some some warriorism, you know, but it's not warriorism against things on the outside by any stretch. It's warrior warriorism I just made up a word. Warriorism toward your own limitations and your own ignorance and so on. And um so yeah, you know, and I can suggest to you or anybody else, you know, if people have a way of getting in touch with you, I can send along some things to perhaps read some introductory things that are uh that are quite quote unquote enlightening, you know. Um and you know I yeah, I'd be happy to happy to do that. But um you know, one of the one of again, one of the aspects of Buddhist practice, and this is true regardless of where we are, which which lineage or school of Buddhism we're studying, is that um Buddhism is is really um 
and very much so in the Tibetan teachings, a uh, preparation for death. We're all going to die. We all, you know, you just brought it up. You know, you're getting old. I'm getting old. I'm going to be 67 next week. I'm, I mean, no kidding. I'm getting old. I mean, Happy and yeah. oh, thank you. Yeah. Not, you know, something like, well, then 60 is, you know, 70. No, it, that's nonsense. That's, that's nonsense. When I, when I get out of bed in the morning, when I get out of bed in the morning, I feel I'm old. I feel it. You know, it's not so easy walking around for a couple of minutes. Um, but um, but Buddhism is a uh, we, we, we think about death, uh, not in a morbid way, not in a way that's, you know, frightening or horrible or anything else. But but we do acknowledge the fact that that, you know, at some point, one of these days is going to be my last and I'm going to take my last breath. And Buddhism does talk about the what we call rebirth, reincarnation, a couple of different phrases for it. But the idea is, and it's not that different, I think, from Christianity. It's not that the idea is that when this life ends, whatever it is inside, we call it a mind or a mental continuum. Sometimes it's referred to as a soul or a spirit, depending you know where you come from. But the idea is that that soul, spirit, mental continuum, or mind is going to go somewhere else when it leaves the body. The body becomes a corpse. It can't support it anymore. So it goes somewhere else. And where it's going to go is dependent upon the, uh, the, 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 the way it has uh, responded and its, kind of its, its normal attitude during life. If we live a good life, a wholesome life, a generous life, at the moment of death, chances are the mind is going to be, you know, patient and generous. If we've been greedy and ugly and hateful and, you know, at the moment of death, the mind is going to be there. And the, it is the quality, the content, the quality of the mind at the moment of death, when the mind just begins to emerge from the body, that determines where it's going to go and what type of experience it's going to have. So Buddhism kind of, and there's a whole science to this. And, you know, I've, I've done workshops and seminars on this for, for hospice volunteers and so on. It's really interesting. Um, so the idea is that we, we live our lives and we try to cultivate the very best we can that kind of that ground zero, that home base in the mind so that when death is approaching, that's where my mind is. And therefore, I will have the very best opportunity in my reincarnation, rebirth, or I'll go to the best, the best place in heaven as opposed to the, you know, <laughs> the crowded city in heaven. I'll go to the countryside in heaven or what, whatever it is, however you look at it. So that notion in getting older, you said you're getting a little impatient. The word you used was impatient. That's right. Um, in Buddhism, it's more like cultivating a sense of urgency that I don't really have all that much time. I don't know how much time I have left, really. You know, I mean, I, I'm sitting here talking to you on the phone. The, the ceiling above my head could collapse. It's raining. Who knows? Could collapse and I could die it, in a moment, you know. So, yeah. so that that place. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that plays into Buddhism as well. The the urge, a sense of urgency that you know something's coming. 
I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it makes sense to me that I really ought to cultivate the very best conditions and atmosphere in my mind for that moment, because maybe it really does matter. Um, so that becomes part of why we we kind of don't get crabby, <laughs> and why we why we work not to be crabby, and why we work to be patient, because you don't want to die with a crabby mind. It's not a good thing. It's not going to be a good thing. It's not going to have a happy ending. I'm afraid of that on a pillow. Maybe it'll help me. I don't want to die with a crabby yeah. mind. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to die with a crabby mind. It's exactly right. Yeah. I like so. Yeah, I can put you on the pillow right now. Well, what, you know, one of the other uh, nuggets that I got from this book so far that I just really spoke to me is I. She makes a statement that we believe in the we when we believe in the correctness of our view. Well, that's grammatically incorrect. Incorrect. It should be when we believe in the uh, correctness of our views, we can be very mm-hmm. narrow-minded and prejudiced about the faults of other people, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things that bugs me. Is that, um, and especially in our political climate, you know, I mean, it's like I have a hard time understanding why we can't just say, okay, that person voted that way or is working for that because their opinion is different from mine. Uh-uh, mm-hmm. that's not how we view things. If you're doing something, especially politically, that, that doesn't match with my beliefs, then you're either ignorant or you're stupid or you are mean-spirited. Or I mean, we attribute all these horrible things other than just you have different views. You have different life experiences, which led you to have different views. And I don't mm-hmm. understand how we got there. How did we get there? Because it's no. Well, first of all, not everybody is there. Not every not everybody is there. Okay, number one, and there are lots and lots and lots of people who are walking around who do understand that their ideas are just their ideas now, currently, today. And and look, we we've lived our lives. We know and we understand that there are things that we could we could know and believe on Tuesday that on Wednesday we have a whole different idea. That we've learned something, we understand something, we've unlearned something, whatever it might be. So we so we I, I think this is part of what we call wisdom. Wise wiser people, people who have some wisdom, understand that whatever it is their ideas are at any point in time are just their ideas at any point in time, and anybody else's ideas are you know are are if they're not harmful, you know if they're not harmful um if they're not hurting other people. Their ideas are perhaps just as valid as mine, and and we understand that. And and again, you know, throw out another kind of word that is cultivated, you know, uh, consciously cultivated in Buddhist practice, is the word of equanimity, equanimity. And that's what we're talking about: is the equanimous mind. You know, we back in Florida years ago. I made up bumper stickers for all our people, and everybody put them on their cars. We had about 40 people in the Orlando area, and I made up bumper stickers, and the bumper stickers said, don't believe everything you think. (laughs) Don't believe everything you think, because you may not believe it tomorrow. What you think is, what is it? It's a thought. It's... (laughs) So 
Yeah. Again, there's a wisdom that we begin to cultivate, and I'm not saying I'm wise. I'm not wise. I'm 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 just a jerk like everybody else. But uh, but I'm I'm trying, and I'm and I am at times, you know, I'm learning um, that any anybody and everybody, you know, what they believe is is they believe is, is to be true. They think it's going to make them happy. They think it's the right way. They think it's you know and and and. And uh, I don't have to believe it, but I also don't have to argue with them and call them names and think they're stupid because they're not. <laughs> they're not. That's just my ego. I'm sorry? Well, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. But I think that, you know, I mean, we're just saturated with that now. It's not possible to just right. have a different opinion. You're wrong. You're wrong. And not right. only are you wrong, it's... you're mean. You're mean and nasty and you... You know, I mean, right. and it's like, what? Huh? How did we get there? Um, right. It's our, so it's our culture. But you know, mm-hmm. but you know, Heather, understanding it means you don't have to participate in it. You'll still see it in others, and you'll still perhaps shake your head and go, "Oh my gosh, I wish it wasn't like that." But it doesn't mean that you have to participate in it. And I'll tell you something: if you don't participate in it, people around you will notice that. And of the people around you that notice that you're not participating in it, a percentage of them will admire that and they'll want to do the same. And that's how we make change. We don't make change by standing on a soapbox and preaching. And we don't, we make change by doing and being and letting that resonate with people who can see it. And then, I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. And then, and then the changes, and my other phone, and then the changes occur. So, and that is the lesson of Buddhism. It's, it ain't what you say. It's not the clothes you wear. It doesn't matter if you're wearing, you know, monk's robes or a bathing suit. Um, it's what you do. And it's what you, and you share Buddhism by the way you are with others. That's how. That's what this is all about. It's a. It's a. It's an experience. It's an experiential practice, uh, and that's okay. what we do. Well, that leads me to two questions, and I'm looking at the clock, so that's why I'm rushing you. So that leads me to yeah. two questions that I might address. Again, one of the final comments from this book that I've read so far um, speaks to what we were just talking about. She says, "Beliefs and ideals have become just another way to put up walls." Mm-hmm. If we look at Buddhism as a belief and ideal, is that just another wall? No, because it's not, it's not a belief in an ideal. It's a path of discovery. Buddhism is a path of discovery. There's no dogma. There's no dogma in Buddhism. There's none of that. There's none of that. Well, you have to do this. You, there's none of that. Buddhism basically teaches cause and effect. It means that whatever you're doing, um, you're doing because of, of things that have happened in the past, causes that are bringing it to happen now. And however you react to whatever is happening now is going to be the causes of things that happen in the future. That's not dogma. That's science. That's just plain, flat out, you know, cause and effect science. You know, that's Newton talking. And, and, um, and, and we build the beliefs, as, as the quote, as Pema said, you know, we build the beliefs and, and they become walls that we, we hide behind. We keep others out 
and we hide behind. You know, the the wall to, politically, the wall that Trump is looking to build. You know, I it, it's all about you know ostensibly keeping Mexican and and you know Central and South American immigrants out of the country. I look at the wall as something to hem us in. <laughs> that's the way I look at it. That's what he's really. That's the fear. That's the fear trying to keep us in, mm-hmm. keep us in, keep us isolated. That's what I see the wall as being. Um, and that's what that quote refers to is the, our, our beliefs are walls to keep us in, that keep us from, from, uh, uh, you know, uh, growing and, and, uh, expanding. So, okay. So, so when we started this and because of my lack of knowledge about Buddhism, I assumed that Buddhism was a religion, but what I'm hearing you mm-hmm. say is that Buddhism is not a religion, that Buddhism is a philosophy. Well, here in the West, mm-hmm. here in the West, it can be either Buddhism. Uh, not so much. I mean, yes, philosophy is part of it. I think more science. Um, it's more science, more you know, the psychology to it. It's more scientific. Philosophy is certainly part of it. Um, it's it's just it can be a religion, and in Tibet, it really is a religion. But here in the West, it's not. It's not. People are not flocking to Buddhism and forgetting about God and Jesus and Moses and 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 Muhammad. It's it's not like that. Buddhism here is I you know I, I jokingly but I'm not jokingly say that Buddhism here is a vitamin. It's a mind vitamin. It makes your mind richer. And wherever your mind goes, whatever religion your mind adheres to, uh, whatever politics your mind adheres to, you know, whatever football team you root for, it uh, doesn't matter, uh, what relationships you're in, Buddhism is a vitamin that will make your mind stronger and more supple and more flexible and clearer. Um, if you want to take it as a religion, you know, I mean, because Buddhism does have, you know, kind of ethics, you know, moral behaviors and so on. And that kind of fits into religion. And it does talk about afterlife, after death. And that's certainly part of what some religions are. Um, but here in the West, it's never going to succeed as a religion. It's not going to happen as a religion. It's happening as a as a movement of mental health. And that's where it's going to, I believe, going to continue to go. Okay. So that brings me to my final question, which is what we started yeah. the show talking about, what I, what I talked to you about in doing this show, is how, and I'm not asking you this as a professional medical health person, I'm asking you this from your opinion. Mm-hmm. So how would that be helpful to trauma, severe trauma sufferers? Well, I think, uh, again, it's helpful in its positivity, okay? Buddhism, you know, there are certain guidelines that um, that are very, very basic, you know, that, and so we, you know, we, we, we talk about in, in, in our guidelines um, to preserve, to, to preserve and nurture life. We talk about in our guidelines not to lie. We talk about not to engage in sexual misbehavior. We talk about not taking intoxicants. And we talk about being honest and not stealing. If we begin to work the awareness of those practices, in addition to the the strengthening of meditation and meditative practice, then what begins to happen is 
you know, goodwill and compassion and kindness and generosity and altruism and honesty and 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 self-restraint and self-respect and all these wonderful qualities begin to emerge from in the mind, within the mind, and flavor everything we do. And my point is that that is the balm, B-A-L-M, the balm that heals trauma. The way that Buddhism helps heal trauma is by the mind healthier. And the healthy mind is the healing mind. So it's not a direct, it's not a Band-Aid, it's not a stitch, it's not a suture, and it's not a surgery. It is a enriching that begins to overwhelm the, the pain and the darkness of the trauma. And that's how it, it's a progressive path, and that's how it happens. Hmm. Did I ask you, did I not, did I miss any particular question that you wanted to talk about? Because we've got two minutes no, left here. No, So did I no. ask you something that you think is important? Um, no, no, I don't think so. Um, it's, I think we really touched, uh, you know, be happy to do this again if, if more questions arise in the future or, um, or you know, and, and answer, if anybody listens to this program and, you know, I can give you an email address, whatever, if anybody wants to learn more, I have lots of information. I send things out all the time. Um, I'm, I'm doing program at the local prison in Monroe. I'm there six times a month now working with inmates, giving them materials and trying to prepare them for when they get out. Because uh, they have trauma, you know, I mean, obviously they're in prison because they've committed crime, but they are every single man that I talk to in that prison is frightened about getting out the trauma of what they've done and worrying that they're going to do it again. They're going to get back in that situation. So so it's a different kind of trauma we're talking about here, I think. Um, but I have lots of materials and lots of teachings and and. I can point the way to a lot of different things. It's kind of what we do here in Duval, uh, in in Seattle area. So um, okay. nothing that you've missed well, and happy to uh, to do more if you'd like. Okay. Well, and we should also point out that you have a regular radio show on the local radio station. Um, it is 104.9 FM, but if you're outside of the area, you would have to get it on podcast or on um, uh, streaming, and it is 104.9.org. Www. Yeah. Right. 1049, not 104.9, 1049.org. Yeah. Yeah, and the, but the the web address is the www.valley1049.org. Correct, and the broadcast is one hour. It's one hour, and it's on Sundays from 10 a.m. Pacific time, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific. Yeah, and uh, so you and you do a routine uh, show, a weekly show called The Elegant Mind on that station. And so people yes. who want to hear more of you and more from you can, or more about the topic can just go to valley1049.org and yep. uh, tune in on Sunday mornings, at least Sunday morning specific, and learn more. Well, Mark, I've learned a lot. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'm th- is there Great. such a thing as a reluctant Buddhist? 
<laughs> well, how how about you drop the term Buddhist and include the term um, wholesome, happy, mentally healthy, strong person? How about we use that okay. label? And then there. And I'm pretty sure you have to add the the, the uh, you have to add old bat with that because I'm pretty sure I'm going to be hanging on to that old bat persona until I I croak. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, Mark, thank you so much. Happy birthday next week. And thank, thank you, you Heather. And it really has been a pleasure. Thank, thank you so much. Yep. We'll see you down you the road. Thank you, Heather. Okay. Okay. Thank you for listening on Three Women, Three Ways.